Morning, everybody. There's something incredibly timeless about that song, isn't there? Just feels to me a little bit like as though I get to be with my eyes closed. It feels like I'm right together with all kinds of heroes of the faith. Some who are with us in this room, some who have gone on before us 10, 15, 20 years ago, some maybe 100 years ago, some 2,000 years ago, and it feels like we're all together. Let me just follow that up and pray. Lord, somehow that song just floods me with this, this desire to one day be able to... I don't know exactly how that works, Lord, but once I'm able to get up off of my knees from being in your presence, I always imagine that being together with all of the heroes of the faith. And we look forward to that day with great anticipation, Lord. I pray that we would be inspired by this great cloud of witnesses, and Lord, that we would have our eyes fixed on you. Could you just come even this morning, Lord, and just by your Holy Spirit, draw us and mesmerize us, Lord, with who you are. Amen. So we got to start off with a little pop quiz. You guys ready? Did you have enough coffee this morning? <laughs> It's a five-question quiz about what we've been talking about in the last five or so Sundays. And I'll help you out with the first two. That leaves you three questions. Okay? Out of five. You only have to, if you're good at math, you only have to get one right to pass. But anyway, December 19 we, was the last time that we talked, uh, we had a message in this series on the book of John. And we talked, we read from John 15 and verse 18 all the way into the beginning of chapter 16, and it was like a Merry Christmas, the world hates disciples kind of message, right? And then on Christmas Day, and the day following, we heard uh, ex experiences about, uh, of people experiencing, testimonies of people experiencing God's peace and love and hope and joy. And then we talked about joy the following day. That's the first two questions. Here's the third question. What did we talk about on January 2nd? You guys fill in the blank. The title was, What's the Agenda? And I believe that God is calling us, specifically maybe in Pansy Chapel, to a season of obedience. Nice work. You've already passed the test. Question number four, and then January 9, we talked about we're going to walk with confidence as Christians. And it was a reminder of the apologetic arguments that are very sound and logical and reasonable to have a Christian faith. And you could sum that up with an acronym. And if you took that acronym and turned it into a several words, it would start, it starts with command. But it would be command, peace, E-T. Nice. You guys are rocking the test here. And then last week, we talked about the bill and, much more importantly, the Bible. <laughs> and, and I think that sermon might have even been one of those steps of obedience for us as a church to take. Or maybe just another mark on the, on the road of a step, many steps of obedience. And that was just one intentional of those steps. So today we're going to talk more about this book of John. And I want to explain some things, a few things to give us a little bit of context as we just keep reading. And the book of John in the Bible 
is really an account of Jesus' life, but only about his last three years or so of his life. And so if you would imagine that from that edge of the stage, right that corner there, all the way, if that's John chapter 1, and over here was John chapter 21, that's the entire book of John, the first 10 or so chapters, they talk about basically his entire three years, last three years of his life, short of only a few days. In, in John chapter 11 and 12, so it's like really quickly going through those three years, and then it slows down a little bit as we talk about Lazarus, and we talk about his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and maybe those two chapters are over a period of only a few days. And then we get to chapter 13. What's happening in chapter 13? By the way, I don't know if you can see this little black piece of tape that I'm standing on right now. This is about where, if you were doing the math, this would be, if that's John chapter 1, this is about John chapter 13. And in John chapter 13, some very significant things happen. And um, this is the story about the Last Supper. This is the story where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. This is where Judas gets up and leaves to go and betray Jesus. And Jesus tells his disciples that he will be leaving. He is going to be going. And he also predicts in John chapter 13 that uh, Peter is going to betray, uh, betray or, or disown him. That's John chapter 13. What happens next in the story? So many of us, here's what we think. We think, okay, the next thing that happens is uh, Jesus and his disciples, they cross the Kidron Valley, and then he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and gets arrested. But it's actually not what happens next, because that's in the beginning of chapter 18. That was chapter 13, and there's five chapters in here. You know when those five chapters take place? During the five-ish hours of Jesus' last supper with his disciples and the conversation that followed in that same room. And then in chapter 18, he, they cross the Kidron Valley, and of course we know the story of the Garden of Gethsemane. He gets arrested and so on. That's chapters 18, and then he, his death, his, uh, his crucifixion, the resurrection, and then some accounts of him appearing again after he was dead. That's 18 to 21. But in this passage here from chapter 13 to 17, those five chapters are all about these few hours, the last few hours of Jesus' life with his disciples, where he could freely explain things and talk to them. And if you have a red-letter Bible and you would just glance through chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, what will you notice? There's a lot of red letters in there. And as John was writing this entire book, he was thinking that if, if he was going to write down everything that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough room in the world for all of the books. But he is really hanging on to, on these five chapters here, he is really hanging on to what were Jesus' last words to his disciples as he was getting ready to leave. And we're going to read just a few of them this morning. But I want, I want us to get a sense of where according to the biblical account, is where I think the disciples were at when they heard these words. And so I want to tell you just a completely made-up story. <laughs> this is not a Bible story. I'm going to depart from that and just tell you a, a fake story, okay? I just want to be clear. 
case this is the first time you've ever heard about the Bible, this is not a story from the Bible, okay? I want you to imagine that in your life, someone comes into your life, maybe it's through work or through the community or somewhere, and this person, this man, is a real adventurer, if you will. And he is just, there's something about him that is just incredibly mesmerizing about him. You really want to follow him. And, but he keeps getting in trouble with the law, but you follow him anyways because you sense he's up to something and maybe even has a, he's going to overcome the law, right? There's something really magnetic about this guy and you follow him and it becomes a great adventure following him. You get into some harrowing experiences and eventually, I don't know if you've ever watched some adventure movies, you might help your brain get there, but maybe you for whatever reason, you follow this guy into like a submarine, and this is going to be epic, this is the big moment in the story, and you're in the submarine, and you're underwater, and suddenly this thing is filling with water, and you're in the same room with, the, with this leader you've been following, and water is now filling this chamber, and you realize this is pretty scary, and then the leader says something like this, okay, I know you guys have been following me for a while now, I have a few important things to tell you, and then I'm going to die and sacrifice myself for you. And then, and then after this, this is what's going to happen. And he, he, he even starts to talk about what's going to come next or why that has to happen that way. You hear absolutely nothing. Because all you heard was what? I'm going to die now. And you're thinking in your head, whoa, 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 whoa. I gave up everything to follow you. I'm with you, trapped in this place now, and I can't even escape from this now because I already know you so well. Now you're going to die? And that's it. They get stuck there. I think that's where the disciples were when they heard these words from Jesus. John 16. He's having a conversation with his disciples on the last evening. And, he's, and these are among his words, okay? I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. It seems that the disciples are so shocked by Jesus telling them that he is leaving them that they're unable to think past it. They're not, right now in this moment, I don't think that they're thinking, oh, Jesus must have a plan and he'll just take, it, take care of it. No. They're not thinking, oh, this is going to lead us to eternity in heaven and it's going, that's how it's going to work. They're not thinking about what happens next in the story and why it has to happen. They're just stuck on this bad news. From their perspective, it's terrible news that Jesus is going away. And from their perspective, is it bad news that Jesus is going away? <laughs> yes. From their perspective, they've left everything to follow him, and now he's leaving? Which makes his next words all the more gripping. He says, this is what he says, But very truly, and again, we know that everything that Jesus says is absolute truth. But when he says very truly, it's like he is underlining it. It's like he's bold, making the text, the font bold. It's like he's highlighting it with a yellow highlighter or something. He, this, pay attention. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, 
will not come to you, but if I go, I'll send them to you. So although Jesus was fully man, he was also fully God at the same time, and he was the miracle-working, truth-speaking leader of the disciples. How can it be for their good that he's leaving? You guys know the answer, because if he leaves, then the advocate comes. That advocate is the Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter. The same Holy Spirit that Old Testament heroes like Moses could only dream and wish and pray that one day God would pour out on all people, not just a few. The same Holy Spirit that Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Joel would prophesy about and only dream of one day they might get to see what that looks like when the Holy Spirit comes on all believers. The same Holy Spirit that John the Baptist prophesied that Jesus would baptize with and the same Holy Spirit that Jesus had been anointed with to do miraculous works and had been anointed with to preach the good news to the poor. And the Holy Spirit would have that advantage of not being bound to only being in one place at one time, but have the advantage to be everywhere at once, living equally in every believer across the planet. And then in the next few verses, Jesus is going to go on to describe the workings of the Holy Spirit. And if you were to oversimplify Jesus' words just in these few paragraphs, this is not the only time he describes the working of the Holy Spirit, but in these two paragraphs, he describes basically two things, if you really wanted to summarize it very loosely. One is the Holy Spirit is, go is going to be a convictor. And secondly, he is going to be one who speaks. Because he does both of those things. He convicts and he speaks. And every time that he convicts and every time he speaks, it's in perfect unity with Jesus and it's in perfect unity with the Father. Verse 8 says this, When he comes, he will prove the world. That word prove, by the way, in many translations use the word convict. He's going to convict the world, he's going to prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. And about righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. One way to understand those three areas of conviction is this. The Holy Spirit will convict unbelievers of their sin, leading them to repent of their sin and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And we know that based on something like 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3, that nobody can ever say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That's one of the things he does. He convicts unbelievers to become believers. He also convicts believers not only to live sinless, sinless lives, but to live righteous lives. Because Jesus himself said that you cannot even enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness would even go beyond that of the Pharisees. And he's talking about there about a condition of our hearts, but it's actually something that's humanly impossible. The only way that that's made possible is through Jesus, who shed his blood for us on the cross. He took our sin on himself and provided a way so that only through Jesus and because of Jesus and his blood, we could actually become the righteousness of God. 
and that conviction to live a holy life because of Jesus. We talked a little bit about that last Sunday. That conviction to not just live sinless, but to live a holy life because God is holy is another work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also convicts in regards to eternity, eternity about judgment. God wants every person to be saved from that judgment. And his primary concern is where we are going to spend eternity. And the Holy Spirit is convicting, he's interceding in accordance with God's will. And his conviction and his guidance are always given in light of eternity. If at some point in your life you have ever said the words, Jesus is Lord, or Jesus, I want you to be my Lord, that came as a, from a conviction from the Holy Spirit. And if you've ever been convinced or convicted that you want and need to live a holy life apart from your natural desires, but according to Jesus' desires, and you want to live a holy life that lines up with his word, the Bible, that conviction came from the Holy Spirit. And he might be convicting you of that right now. You might have been a believer for a long time already, and you already know there's, there's an area in your life that you're not living the way that you should. That conviction to live according to his standard and not yours, that conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. The advice that the Lord gives many times in Scripture, if I was to paraphrase it, would be this. Don't delay. If he's convicting you of an area in your life that is not surrendered to him, then submit. Repent of it. Submit to him. And then tell another brother or sister in Jesus. And then ask them to hold you accountable. Don't delay. And maybe you've never even started this journey with Jesus. But even as you hear these words spoken and read in this infallible book, you know that Jesus is the one and only Savior of the world. And maybe you've never said those words, Jesus, I acknowledge you as the Savior of the world, and I want you to be my Lord. If you've never said those words before, a similar call would come to you from Jesus according to Scripture. He would say, don't delay. Why don't you begin with saying a simple prayer with me today? It's going to be really simple. I would explain it like A, B, and C. The A, just it's a prayer. We just talk to Jesus as though he's in the room because he is. And we just say, Jesus, the A stands for admit. I just admit that I'm a sinner. I live according to my own natural desires. And I recognize I need to live according to yours. I'm a sinner. And then B stands for believe. Jesus, I believe that you died for me. You paid the penalty for my sins on the cross. 
and then you rose again three days later to eternal life. I believe that. And then the C stands for confess. I just want to confess, which means out loud, audibly say, Jesus is Lord. I want you to be the Lord of my life. And do you know what? <laughs> if you pray that prayer today for the first time, there's a promise in Scripture, and the promise is this. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that promise is for you and your kids and for everyone who accepts Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So I'm just going to boldly say this. Why don't you pray with me right now? And I'm going to, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask everybody in this auditorium, and I'll challenge those people online to do the same. Why doesn't everybody just repeat after me the words that I'm saying? Just in an effort to break the ice for those that might be saying this for the first time. Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I've lived according to my own desires. But I want to live according to yours. I believe that you died for me and that your blood is enough to pay the penalty for my sin. And I believe that you rose again and are alive today. And I confess that Jesus is Lord. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer for the first time, I would challenge you with one more thing. Tell somebody, tell somebody about it. If you're in the building, you could tell somebody maybe that you came to church with or somebody that you know from here, or you can track me down. I'd love to chat. If you're online, you can contact us here at the church, send an email or whatever. We'd love to walk with you. We'd love to learn more about Jesus and the Holy Spirit together with you. Because not only does the Holy Spirit convict people, he leads and he guides people in very specific ways. And he may tell them something that, they, that he just wants them to know. Many times in Scripture, Jesus challenges his followers to have the kind of ears that hear what his Spirit says. And so it's not surprising then to hear what Jesus says next in this conversation this evening with his disciples. Verse 12, he says this, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, <clears throat> he will guide you into, the into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. Let's pick this apart just a little bit about the workings of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> the word translated right there as the word guide is only used a few times in Scripture, but it's the same word used in Acts chapter 8 in the story about the Ethiopian eunuch. And just to tell that story very quickly, 
the Holy Spirit tells Philip to go down a certain road and then to go to a certain chariot. And when he gets there, he finds this man reading the scroll of Isaiah. <clears throat> but the man doesn't understand what he's reading. And he says to Philip, how can I understand what I'm reading unless someone explains, and it's exactly that, exactly that word, guide, unless somebody guides me through it. That man knew that he could not fully grasp it unless someone guided him. That guidance comes from the Holy Spirit. It's actually the Holy Spirit's job to make that happen. And yes, he also sent Philip to go and help him or speak the words. <clears throat> but the Holy Spirit is, this, is the same one who sends Philip to that certain place. And he is also the one who brings that guidance. And he helps people to understand Scripture. And that word, speak, the Holy Spirit will speak. That word, that Greek word, is used many times in Scripture. But I just want to think about the same way that Jesus used that word in the recorded conversation that he has in those five hours. Think about the conversation that, that is recorded that he had with his disciples in those five hours and how Jesus uses that word speak. For instance, Jesus talks about his own words and he says that his words are not only his words, but they're actually from the Father. And in the same way, he says that the words from the Spirit are not just from the Spirit, but they're actually from Jesus. Helping people to understand what the Father is saying. Jesus, when he's talking about his own words, says that his own words convict people of sin. He says that in 15 verse 22. His words are intended to also protect the disciples from going astray. And other times, that word speak is when Jesus is just talking very matter-of-factly. And in a similar way, the Holy Spirit also convicts people of sin with a desire to keep him from going astray. And sometimes he simply speaks to us by bringing to our attention things that we need to know. The most common way that the Holy Spirit speaks is through our thoughts. And it's possible that you have mistaken the Holy Spirit's conviction for your own thoughts. Which is why something like the Hearing God course is so vital in the church, because we need to learn to discern his voice. When I first accepted Jesus, and I prayed that prayer that we just prayed, accepting Jesus as my Lord, I didn't know it was the Holy Spirit. But that was his conviction in my thoughts. And although it's rare to hear an audible voice, it sometimes does happen. A gentleman in this church told me about an experience that he had approximately two weeks ago, maybe three. He was going through a very lonely and troubling time when he heard the Holy Spirit speak in an audible voice, including calling him by his name, and there was nobody else in the room. And what the Holy Spirit spoke in that sentence or two assured the man that not only was God with him in that moment and seeing him in that moment, but that God was well aware of the things that this man had been going through for many years already. And the sentence that was spoken communicated that plus more. 
of course, you and I know from Scripture that, yes, we, of course we know that God sees, He knows, and He cares. There's lots of Scripture to, to prove exactly that. We believe it. As, as a Christian, we believe that. But when the Holy Spirit, in His graciousness, ever says something like that to you in an audible voice, you shift from just believing it's true to knowing it's true. <laughs> and suddenly... You believe that the Lord sees, cares, and knows, and now you know that the Lord sees, cares, and knows. And it brings assurance. It brings, actually, a fear of the Lord. And it brings healthy emotions, <laughs> like tears. And it brings an incredible desire to see Jesus one day. And these words, he will tell you, describing the Holy Spirit's workings. Those words tell you, and some translations use the word disclose. They're used many times in the Greek version of the book of Isaiah that describe telling of things to come in the future is something that only God can do. Because the Holy Spirit has the same intentions as God, the same eternal and divine nature as God, the Holy Spirit is God. Welcome to the inseparable and beautiful nature of the Trinity. The three persons of God that make one God. And then we keep reading. Verse 14. Jesus just is going to explain the beautifulness of the Trinity. In these verses, he just kind of uh, says exactly that. And he says, he will glorify, he's still talking about the Holy Spirit. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. The Holy Spirit can make things known to people. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. And all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. And you have this beautiful picture of the inseparable nature of the Trinity. A picture, by the way, which is an incredible model for a Christian marriage. What belongs to the Father belongs to Jesus. And what the Holy Spirit reveals to us and convicts us of is in perfect alignment with the heart of the Father and of the Son. And it glorifies the Father and the Son because they are all one God. Perfect in unity, perfect in glory, perfect in in majesty. If you want to know who the Holy Spirit is and how we should expect Him to act or interact with us today, then we need to think about who Jesus described Him to be in these last few hours that He was with His disciples. Jesus knew what was coming next. And He described what we could expect from the Holy Spirit. This is now the fourth, that passage we just read, that's the fourth time in this evening that Jesus has described the Holy Spirit with that word or the name advocate. Fourth time. That, that name is used only five times in Scripture, and the fifth time it's used to describe who Jesus is. Earlier this evening in that speech, Jesus described the advocate, the helper, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, as another one like himself, the spirit of truth. He described him as a teacher 
and reminder. He described the Holy Spirit as one who is going to testify about, in other words, give a good report about Jesus, because he truly is the Spirit of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus would describe the effect of the Holy Spirit this way, and he would, he would say, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. With this in mind, why don't you just close your eyes as I paraphrase this story, and then we're going to go straight into prayer. Again, just to be clear, this is a paraphrase. The timing of Jesus' death at the age of 33 seemed so wrong to his disciples that caught them off guard and sent them into confusion. But of course, his resurrection three days later revived their hope in their Messiah and rejuvenated their sagging spirits. But before them stood the task of going out and witnessing to the entire world for Jesus without him being there with them in person. Their task was daunting and intimidating. The message they were about to spread about Jesus was something that they themselves had not been able to understand until God himself opened their minds. Their chance of success was almost zero. They were unschooled and ordinary men with hardly any money, few influential friends, if any, and no political momentum behind them. And standing directly against them was the threat of torture from the abusive religious power of the Sanhedrin, the political and military power of the Roman Empire, and the religious condemnation of the Jews. The disciples didn't always get along with each other and had a tendency to run and hide. Additionally, their leader, whose life and teachings were to inspire and make up the whole point of their message, was basically unknown outside of his small circle of friends. He had written no books, erected no monuments, began no schools. The task looked hopeless. And then they received the Holy Spirit. And then they received the Holy Spirit. They became united. They became bold, equipped, relentless, enabled, guided, empowered, gifted, motivated, and effective filled with an unquenchable anticipation for eternity, thanks to the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus. Are you thankful that as a believer, you have that same Holy Spirit in you? Jesus, as we just pause to pray, how could we say anything else other than thank you, Jesus? Thank you, Jesus, for giving us the gift of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood that pays the penalty for our sin. Thank you, Jesus, that you rose again and are alive forever. And we have the hope for all of eternity, Jesus, to be alive with you. And you have given us as a little deposit, guaranteeing what is yet to come the gift of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Jesus. Amen.